When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Available on demand starting November 12th is Noah Baumbach's Francis Ha, starring Greta Gerwig and Blackfish. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. This episode is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over a million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 25% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SVU1113. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And in this episode, we're going to seek escape from the harsh realities of our day-to-day lives by geeking out about movies in ways both amusing and terribly, terribly sad. And that's not even inspired by our main review of The Dirties. That's just business as usual here on the Film Spotting SVU podcast. Yes, the advantage of this being an audio podcast, you can't see the tears streaming down our faces the whole time we record this. Yes, we are talking about The Dirties this week, a Canadian independent film that's currently in theaters and available to rent online, thanks to the support of one Kevin Smith. Uh, That'll be later in the show, after our Q-Shot segment, in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered around a common theme. In honor of The Dirties, we were just going to unload about our complicated relationships with Kevin Smith as a filmmaker and pop culture figure over the years. But, you know, let's better save for our therapists. And also, we wanted to avoid any potential battles with his devoted and sometimes pugnacious following. So instead, we're going to talk about found footage films. But before all of that, we have Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand On Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. So, Matt, what are our picks this week? Our picks this week are a bunch of films I haven't seen yet, but all highly anticipated. These are three fall films that I am definitely interested in checking out. The first one is available on VOD starting on November 5th, and it's called Parkland, directed by Peter Landsman and produced uh, by, among other people, Tom Hanks. It's an ensemble drama about the immediate aftermath of the JFK assassination, so... You have all these actors playing different characters from around uh, the assassination. You have Paul Giamatti, who's playing Abraham Zapruder, who shot the famous Zapruder film of the actual shooting. You have Zac Efron playing one of the doctors who tried to save JFK's life. I don't want to spoil how it turned out, so I'll leave it there. Uh, You have James Badgedale playing Lee Harvey Oswald's brother. I think Jackie Weaver plays his mother. 
Um, you have Billy Bob Thornton as a Secret Service agent. And there's a few other uh, interesting members of the cast as well. Uh, the movie played at Venice and Toronto, the uh, film festivals, of course, not just like in those cities. Good morning, everyone. This is Norwood McClendon reporting. Fort Worth temperature 56 degrees, Dallas 55. Nice day for a motorcade. President and Mrs. Kennedy arrived in Fort Worth from Houston late. Anything you get on the president's visit you don't like, tell the Secret Service. Their show. The president scheduled the two speeches. We're going to be okay here? Oh, yeah. It's a good program. It will now only be a matter of minutes until the arrival. Early lunch today. I want everybody downstairs to see the president. Now they've turned on to Elm Street. There he is! Allison, I think you were just in Dallas at the Book Depository, right? I was. I was there for another upcoming right, there a different are many, project. There are many upcoming JFK anniversary, the 50th anniversary. 50th, yeah, exactly. Uh, that was for Killing Kennedy, which is the uh, National Geographic film with Rob Lowe as uh, JFK. And yeah, you, there, there's a lot going on around there. There's yeah. that weird grimness of being like, there's an X on the road where that's they, where he was shot. They say he was shot. Wow. Yeah. Did and you learn anything uh, while you were down there? Uh, probably too much. If yeah. you want me to go into intense detail, give me about one. That, no, just one tidbit. I think I knew almost nothing about Lee Harvey Oswald and mm-hmm. uh, the fact that he went to Russia for a while and tried to defect to Russia. He was a Marxist and, uh, but also just kind of disenchanted with. You know, life. He was kind of just an angry young man that, you know, I had no idea. So that was really interesting to me. And he brought back a, a Russian bride who didn't speak much English. Oh, wow. I didn't know and that. And he's still alive. And she lives in Texas. Wow. Yeah. See, okay. See, now you're, now you're giving me a tidbit. That was mm-hmm. a good tidbit. Yeah. If only Leah Harvey Oswald had had like a camera to film himself. And could have left the footage somewhere to right, be discovered, to be discovered later. Things yeah. could have turned out very differently for decades of conspiracy theories. Certainly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, the film is called Parkland again, and it's available on VOD on November 5th. Two more recommendations for you. The first uh, is available on November 8th, and it's called How I Live Now, directed by Kevin MacDonald, who's the uh, filmmaker behind Last King of Scotland and the documentary about Bob Marley that was, I believe, just titled Marley. This is based on a young adult novel about a girl who's played in the film by Saoirse Ronan, who's a fabulous young actress. Uh, She's, like, sent to live with cousins in England, and while she's there, World War III essentially breaks out, and the movie is about her as she struggles to survive and this kind of, like budding dystopia kind of a thing. I mean, in this case, I haven't read the book, and I don't know too much about it, but I'm really just going on Kevin McDonald and, and Saoirse Ronan as a, as a team that would be of interest to me. Allison, have you seen I haven't it, read seen the it. book? No, anything? no, but it's a really interesting, crazy concept. Certainly yeah. seeing the trailer for this, it just good trailer. like it, a good trailer and also just a combination of elements that I wouldn't have expected. Right, you don't the, see too often, like yeah. this perspective on the kind of World War Three style movie. Right, like a teen romance perspective. A teen romance. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's an interesting combo. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah, me too. So that's How I Live Now, available on VOD on November 8th. And finally, also available on November 8th, is a film called Ass Backwards, directed by Chris Nelson and written by and starring Casey Wilson and June Diane uh, Raphael. And in this case... I'm recommending it primarily on the basis of those two names right there. They're comedy writing partners. You might know them from different things. Casey Wilson was on Saturday Night Live for a few years. She was on a show I haven't watched called Happy Endings. Have you watched that? Yeah, she's very funny on that. She was great on SNL. It was canceled, right? (laughs) I was always bummed out that she was only on SNL for like two years. She seemed, I thought she was really talented there. And 
June Diane Raphael has done a bunch of stuff. She's uh, one of the co-hosts of the How Did This Get Made podcast, which I listen to and enjoy. She's on Burning Love. She's on Burning Love, which is like a parody of The Bachelor, which is cute, but to me, like, The Bachelor is the, is the only best parody of The Bachelor you need. Right, so, but you are a Bachelor devotee. A, I am, and it sounds like you're, if it, we haven't mentioned this before, it sounds like you're kidding, but I'm, I am, actually. Totally serious. Totally yes. serious. <laughs> and uh, th- there's no better mockery of The Bachelor than The Bachelor itself, so it's almost unnecessary. Nevertheless, I think they're really funny, really talented women, and so uh, the fact that they star in it and also wrote it together... Makes me very interested. I'll just read very quickly a a, a synopsis I have here. It says, Lovable losers Kate and Chloe, which are Casey and June Diane, are best friends with a not-so-firm grip on reality. The girls have been inseparable ever since tying for dead last at a kitty beauty pageant as children. Now they are all grown up and living in New York City, where Chloe is a rising star dancing in a glass box at a nightclub, rising star in quotation marks, and Kate is the, quotation marks, CEO of her own one-woman egg donor corporation, Excellent also supporting cast. Alicia Silverstone, John Cryer, Vincent D'Onofrio, Brian Garrity, Bob Odenkirk, and Paul Shear all in this one as well. So I am I am officially intrigued. That is Ass Backwards, and that is available on VOD starting on November 8th. We're very happy to have Shutterstock.com back as a sponsor of this episode of Film Spotting SVU. At Shutterstock.com, you can find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project. You can choose from over 1 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. And they have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips, and many of its contributors are professional filmmakers. Uh, Shutterstock reviews each video individually for content and quality before adding it to its library, and Shutterstock adds 12,000 video clips each week, so every time you visit, you can find something new. Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to take your creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy with sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor name, and more. As you find the video assets you're looking for, you can save them to a clip box, and then you can access your selections anytime and share them with other team members. Shutterstock has flexible pricing, and you can choose between individual clips or video packs, and you can also download clips in HD or save them with standard definitions or web formats. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just start your account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code SVU1113, and new accounts will receive 25% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 25% off new accounts, use offer code SVU1113. We thank Shutterstock for their support. So our subject this week for Q Shots is found footage. We really had two obvious choices here. It was really bullying or found footage. Uh, but we just did Carrie, which is, you know, bullying. That's a really – and we talked a little bit about it. And it just seemed like that would be too repetitive 
of a of a subject. So we'll save bullying for another time, perhaps, when you've all forgotten that we reviewed Carrie in the first place, and we could talk about that one. So instead, we'll do found. Uh, we'll um. What? Where did you leave this videotape here? I have never seen it before. This, it's got this funny. Like a like an X on it, but it doesn't have any other markings on it. Why would you leave this video? I tape don't here? know. Do you, you want to put? You, we should put it in the player. Let's put it in. Let's find out what's on there. Um, why is there? What did you? It's it's us sitting here recording this podcast. Did you do this? No. Where is the camera? How did someone even do this? Oh my god! And scene. And there we go. And we could shoot that for a very affordable and, and probably price. sell it to a a, a small a small distributor. Indie distributor for millions of dollars. Millions and millions. If anyone's interested. <laughs> Please email svu at filmspottingsvu.com. <laughs> so found footage, Allison. Um, yes. Besides the fact that everyone is exactly like the uh, scenario we just uh, played right now. Yes, that overused podcast horror genre. <laughs> <laughs> Do, is there anything we want to say in a general sense uh, about found footage movies? Well, uh, you know, it's very bound up. Uh, with the horror genre just because it's a it's a great way to do on the cheap uh horror right like it limits your scope by having it you know you don't you can do it on a consumer grade camera that's fine because that would fit in with a story right uh you can have it be from someone's restricted point of view because they're shooting the video right. so they don't need to see the ghost the whole time or whatever is is trying to murder them right you know uh some of the most famous examples, right? The Blair Witch Project, you know, and uh, Paranormal Activity. All of these have managed to do very thrifty, very lucrative, uh, very successful, um, you know, the horror films yeah. uh, out of this, out of this idea. When you hear about stories of like the most financially successful or profitable like movies of all time, a lot of them are found footage horror movies that cost like fifteen grand to make. And caught on. They just, you know, someone picked them up and released them, and then they end up making $200 million. And when your movie only costs, a, you know, a couple of grand to make, that's, you know, it's it's like winning the lottery uh, as movie making. It's a story that you hear quite a bit. I think the other thing that's important to note about why it's so good for low-budget filmmaking is it excuses, hypothetically, you may not agree as a viewer, but hypothetically, it excuses all manner of bad filmmaking, you know, normally it demands it almost. it almost demands it. You're right. Any amount of like out of focus, blurriness, rack focus, shaky camera, bad sound, bad acting, any almost any sin that would be committed and particularly by like a small independent film by, you know, young filmmakers who are working with, you know, inexperienced with the materials, with the equipment, maybe working with actors who are inexperienced. It just it, 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 it pastes over all of that. It smooths it all over so that it's it's not really a problem. Hypothetically, we may think, well, in this case, it doesn't work or in that case, it's it's still not believable. And I think something that I want to discuss later is that in some ways it actually makes it it can make it tougher in some ways. Uh, in terms of like the suspension of disbelief, which I think is something that's very critical to this subgenre and needs to be discussed. But it, I think that's also a reason why you see it is because, you know, if I, I don't really have a great cinematographer, but I have a decent one, just have him, you know, uh, it's okay if it's not perfect. In fact, as you said, it's almost demands to be imperfect in order to achieve that right look. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this is as everyone becomes an amateur cinematographer mm. with just their phone even we're seeing some more kind of 
interesting ways in which this genre is used, subgenre is used. Mm-hmm. We've bo- we've mentioned King Kelly before, which is a really interesting film about self-documentation yes. and just kind of nar- the narcissism inherent in that needing to constantly kind of be posing for your own selfie. Right. But uh, we've also seen fan footage as much as it's common in low budget films in some bigger budget ones, uh, one of which I'm going to talk about, but you know, something like Chronicle, which is unfortunately not streaming, which is a film I know I liked a lot and you did too. Yeah. I remember, you very, know, that very good that made really interesting and large use, large scale use of found footage uh, and, you know, touches on some of the same subject, subject matter as the dirties, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But, you mentioned King Kelly. I, that is available on Netflix to to uh, stream. Not one of our picks, but yeah, it's it's not a horror movie, but it uses all those tropes in a really interesting way. And and yeah, it definitely reflects not just found footage and and filming things, but also this sort of like age of of selfies and Facebook and you know like the movie actually interacts with its own Facebook page within the the world of the movie where the characters are uploading things they're doing and shooting to Facebook. And then characters are commenting on them in the movie, and then it, it, it like escalates the movie in a way, which I think is really smart. There's two general questions I briefly want to get answered before we move to our picks. And okay. the, number one is the most important, which is, how do we separate found footage from mockumentary or fake documentary? Right. How do we do that? I, I don't know that there's a clear line. Uh, some films obviously start off with a this tape was found, the footage was not altered or whatever to tell you, you know, this was literally found somewhere in the universe of the, of the film. I think other times it's less clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, paranormal activity. You've raised this question before. If this is found footage, who has edited it together? Right. (laughs) You know, and also why did they not just cut right to the dramatic scary moments as opposed to letting it build slowly (laughs) for an hour and a half? Right. You know, is it, is the demon editing it? That was my suggestion actually for paranormal activity two, Mm -hmm. which was the first one I think is actually a pretty tight, you know, experience fairly relatively speaking. If you buy into the concept of this couple, filming themselves sticking the camera at one end of the room and like you see the like the footage kind of flying by because they're just filming all night long paranormal activity 2 is like security cameras and they're like cutting back and forth and they're not cutting back and forth for like maximum like to show you things they're cutting back and forth for like maximum like suspense and scares like they're not showing you what's happening they're showing you almost like what's not happening and and people reacting as things out of sight happen so yeah it almost felt to me like an evil demon or something was was cut like the a spirit was cutting it just to mess with people but that is a that that's sort of the other question which we'll have to get to too is do you care personally Allison if a like how closely a found footage movie follows the rules of this is a found object. Like, you know, do, do you care if it's a quote unquote found object and it's clearly cut together and multiple angles and very much obviously not a, you know, it, it doesn't have a, a, a guise of, of documentary. Does it bother you? It doesn't bother me, though. There are definitely times in the more certainly horror where I get irritated with why is this person still filming? Yeah. Or. Or when they, it doesn't make it any better when they raise the question within the movie, which I think happens in um, the Diary of the Dead, the Romero film that's mm-hmm. the found footage film. Oh, I think at one point someone's like, you know, explaining why they're still filming, and you're like, shut up! <laughs> like, I don't want to hear your, you know, kind of moody explanation for yeah. this documenting, documenting this. Like, it, 
if it's intrusive, either because you can't help thinking about it or because it needs to engage the discussion too much, I think that's a problem. It's funny that the issue of why are they still filming is the one that you point to as the one that bugs you. And I actually almost never have that problem. I almost think that society and Facebook and movies like King Kelly pointing it out, like society's almost explained why they're still filming at this point because people are filming everything at all times now. I was just – somebody put up a video on Facebook that was I was watching earlier today of a traffic accident. I was just like, why would anyone film this? But somebody did. Somebody's right. al- somebody is always filming. You know what I mean? So to, to a certain ex- extent, society's like insanity has has almost validated some of these more outrageous and unbelievable horror movies. Yeah, and I I agree. Now I think that that is something that maybe now has become plausible, especially maybe it's if a self-fulfilling it's, prophecy, right? If in the age of like the camera phone, but yeah. maybe, and that brings us to, uh, it's a good transition to my first pick, which is, you know, one of the, maybe the big, uh, the obvious found footage, like big budget film that you would think of. It's available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google play, voodoo, YouTube, and Sony, which would be Cloverfield. Mm. And this film was a 2008 film. And I remember at the time that, that issue came up for me because it's uh, someone recording on a camcorder, right? Yes. And at a certain point, you're like, you are running for your life. Running for your life. a monster. But keeping the monster <laughs> kind keeping, of in frame. Sort of in frame. Yeah. yeah, like artfully kind of like just behind to save via, <laughs> you know, VFX shots. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a very effective film. And to see the aesthetics of found footage be put together with high-end special effects does work incredibly well. I think that juxtaposition... You know, at least in terms of how those effects suddenly look on screen, it still it still has a lot of impact. Uh, and I think as we're see- even as we've become like more used to seeing that kind of like shaky cam combined with with special effects, you know, it does make you re-examine the monster, you know, looming in the back in the background in a different way than you would if you was shot like a more traditional movie. Mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting things about Chronicle, which, uh, you know, was directed by Matt Reeves, written by Drew Goddard and J.J. Uh, Abrams was the producer and was kind of kept secret, uh, stars a group of actors, some of whom are more famous now. Most at the time were, were relatively unknown. But I, I think one of the things that's interesting about it being a found footage movie and also a disaster movie is that it kind of can't help but recall 9-11 just because of the that's what happens when you have kind of documentary style footage right especially this is it's a film that is starts in downtown new york and the initial shot of them going out into the street and seeing buildings collapsing at the end is like it looks like you know a lot of the footage that was shot that day I don't say that as a condemnation or praise necessarily just that it's one of those consequences of reframing the way you look at a disaster footage so it doesn't look like a blockbuster necessarily but right. it's supposed to look real and it was one of those things that was definitely on my mind when i saw it for the first time mm-hmm. i think now we've just had a whole summer of you know blockbusters about buildings falling down it doesn't Man necessarily feel star yeah, trek exactly. in the darkness it doesn't necessarily feel the same way or obviously right. we're over over that bump but i feel like this was the first film to really the first big commercial film that was not explicitly, you know, about that, that kind of engaged that imagery. That well, you, m- you mentioned also the, the found footage aspect, I think, is absolutely part of the reason it makes you think of 9-11. And maybe it's one of the reasons these movies have become more prevalent and popular in the wake of 9-11 is they do explicitly or implicitly evoke 
that horror and like the way that we all saw that horror, which was through camera phones and, and like, you know, low grade video. It, it, it immediately recalls that it makes you think of it and it just makes it that much more immediate and intense and terrifying. Yeah. And I think it says something to how well that works, that the fact that this is a film populated by characters, I think it's very difficult to latch onto at all. You know, it's, yes. it's based around, I think one of the most annoying, you know, like <laughs> I need to go, let us travel through this, this city that is being destroyed so that I can find the girl that I I'm in love Don't they, with, like, walk they, through the entire, like, the underground subway, subway yes, and someone gets, you know, hurt, and they get attacked, and, like, you just, like... like There's some problems there. Yeah, there are some problems, definitely. But despite that, it works incredibly well. It's so kind of lean once the monster shows up and just how, you know, how those scenarios are played out. It's so clever. Mm. It's, it's a very smart take on that monster movie that I think in engaging the naturally limited viewpoint that comes with fan footage. You know, you're just people on the street. You're, all the information you have comes from the news that you can find, right? There's no larger explanation about where the monster came from, like what is making it attack, like what's happening, what's going on. Well, it's only from their viewpoint. It kind of, it makes the scale more impressive, you know, because you don't see the whole thing. Mm. <laughs> what was that noise? It sounded like an animal. Phone calls are pouring into the New York One newsroom as a thunderous, roaring sound. You can see something on the roof? What animal sounds like that? Shaking everywhere, man. It's like tremors. Looks like you should have left town a little bit earlier. It was, you know, a minor landmark in that way. It was a. It did. It was a very worthwhile way of refreshing a, a kind of old-fashioned certainly old-fashioned you know monsters attacking a city a giant monster attacking the city that that idea so that is cloverfield and it is available to rent on all of the usual suspects <laughs> you know just thinking about it and you talking about 9-11 and and I w- i'm wondering if one of the other things that that is uh, connected between 9-11 and the found footage thing it, it, just an example of cloverfield is it's allowed to have, and I don't want to spoil it, but like kind of an unhappy bummer of an ending. Yeah. You know? And a lot of like mainstream movies and bigger movies, you know, they're about like heroes. And found footage movies are often just about average people who they're are caught in these extraordinary circumstances. Often. Yeah. Exactly. They're about victims. And they're allowed to have sort of like sad endings and depressing endings that not just reflect, you know, tragedy, any of the real world tragedies, but are just, I don't know, sometimes more satisfying in a way that a lot of mainstream hollywood movies avoid you know yeah because it's not about the person who likes like you know powers through and right. gets to live on to tell a tale right. it's not about the guy who killed you know the scientist who figured out the way to kill the the right. monster it's, it's the about people who we see in other movies kind right. of being you know fodder on the side right. who, who who get caught and and don't get to go which on. is just you know so much more relatable as a viewer and it does call to mind some real world events so yeah I, i'm just like piecing this all out as you're talking about it, and i think that's another reason why that movie and a lot of these uh, movies, these found footage movies, which have similar kind of bummer endings, I think are really effective. Anyway, that's a good pick. I, I, I agree. There's some problems with some of the story. And yeah, yeah, you're right. He probably would put that camera down at some point, but certainly a, an effective film. Uh, my first pick, I'm going to just, just do this one first, even though it's my streaming pick. It's available just recently uh, on Netflix, and it is uh, VHS 2. 
It's directed by a whole fleet of filmmakers, including Simon Barrett, Adam Wingard, Eduardo Sanchez, Greg Hale, Timo Tejanto, Gareth Hugh Evans, and Jason Eisner. It's a sequel to the 2012 found footage movie VHS. The premise of both is basically the same. People kind of unwittingly come upon sort of the, the, the thing we were joking at at the top of the show. They, like, find VHS tapes that are you know, not marked. They put them in and they discover on these VHS tapes, these strange events. Um, and, and, and it's an anthology film where you watch all these different shorts. They are the, the shorts in the film or the shorts on the tapes. Frankly, the concept, uh, like the framing concept does not work. I don't think in either case, I think they're kind of silly, particularly because all, it's not like these are these videos, these shorts are like VHS shorts. They, they don't look like they're on VHS. They're not set in the 1980s. They're all modern. They're done, especially in the new movie, with like GoPro cameras, really high-end prosumer equipment, you know, really rugged, run-and-gun kind of HD stuff that can get knocked around. You can like stick it on your head and kind of run around and, and, and the camera will film it all like that. It doesn't really make any sense that they would be on VHS tapes. Yeah, it was one of the things I actually appreciated about Paranormal Activity 3, is that it has, you know, cruddier technology that's kind of right. included a bit. You know, one of the main shots is a camcorder taped to an oscillating fan. Right. They got great use out of that in, yeah. in that film. Yeah. yeah, where you're like, you're not pretending it's you can stick a camera, you know, to your head with a, easily. Yeah, and so I think you kind of have to overlook the, the overarching concept here, but I think that's fairly easy to do because I actually find that in both cases, the shorts are generally pretty fun, and I like in, in this case, there's four shorts, and I like three out of the four of them in VHS 2 quite a bit. My favorite of the bunch is this one called Slumber Party Alien Abduction, uh-huh. which is as described. Uh, this is the one that's by Jason Eisner, who directed Hobo with a Shotgun. I just said it like I was really Jewish. Hobo with a Shotgun. Uh, hobo with a Shotgun, which I was not a huge fan of uh, that film, but I think he did a great job with this. It starts off, it's almost like, a, you know, it evokes kind of like the Goonies or something like with, you know, kids. It's about a bunch of kids at a slumber party. They're sort of like pranking and pestering the older teenagers who are watching them. And then all of a sudden, uh, aliens uh, appear, and it's basically just nonstop insanity after that, just totally like pure terrifying mayhem. And I just found it really, really effective. You know, a hobo with a shotgun was so winking and kind of nudge-nudge, you know, poking you in the ribs with, look at how clever I am. And there's nothing winking or, or kind of cutesy about this. This is just like... Uh, you know, the ultimate experience in grueling terror to steal a uh, an old-fashioned horror tagline. It's it's really good. I also really liked Phase 1 Clinical Trials, directed by Adam Wingard, which is like... Uh, it, it, Adam Wingard is the guy who did Your Next. He's also the star of this one. And the idea is that he's one of his eyes has been, like, damaged somehow. Oh, Allison's cringing. Body horror. Here we go. She He has his eye replaced with, like, a robo-camera or something. But it's basically, like, it's haunted. He sees ghosts <laughs> through the robo-camera or whatever in yeah. his eye, and he can't take it out. Ah, it's like the eye. It, it is like the eye. So, yeah, it's pretty creepy. Very well executed. It's a clever premise. You can't see anything out of your biological eye? No. Okay. How about now? Yeah, I mean, it's a little better. It's just kind of blurry and shadowy. Yeah. All right. Well, because your prosthesis is attached directly to your visual cortex, you realize essentially battling with your camera eye to give you input right now. So when your brain gets used to having that chip in there, you should start to see more and more out of your uninjured eye again. Until then, you might see some glitches. What do you mean by glitches? Well, this is just being tested now. Eye injuries like yours are 
quite rare. So that's why we've installed a recording chip into the eye itself so we can test the data that it's receiving. Right, yeah, about that. Yes? Oh, my God. So if I want private time, uh, what do I do? How do I turn this off? Uh, well, you can't, but that's just for this trial period. I mean, you can't expect the KPG Corporation to just give you this implant and not expect to test its data. I also really liked A Ride in the Park, uh, which is one producer and one director of the Blair Witch Project actually doing another found footage movie. It's a zombie short. Uh, I don't know if I want... I'll just say that the main character is a zombie. Okay, uh, interesting. With a camera on him. Okay. So it's kind of it's kind of a fun twist on, on familiar territory. Um, but I think... You know, we talked already about what makes something found footage, what makes something a documentary, and putting down the camera. And I think the advantage of these shorts are you don't have to suspend your disbelief for 90 minutes or 100 minutes. It's a lot easier to buy these these premises when they're sort of uh, like in the short term, when they're just like 15, 20 minutes or sometimes even less. Just a quick hit, uh, it just makes more sense. You know, so it's a lot easier to kind of digest and uh, they really take some fun chances with the with the technology, with the GoPros, those cameras. They really do some crazy shots, and it's very inventive. And like I said, while the pre- the overarching premise doesn't make a lot of sense, and probably even within each short, the reality might break down if you think too hard about it. I think there's some really fun horror filmmaking going on here. So that's VHS two, and it's available now on Netflix. All right. Well, my streaming pick is uh, a film called Troll Hunter, which is available for streaming on Netflix and on Amazon Instant Video. And it's not really a, a horror film. It's more, I would say it's like, it's kind of a fantasy film. It's like a contemporary fantasy film. It's a Norwegian film from 2010, directed by Andre Overdahl. And it is about three college students who set out to make what they think is going to be a Michael Moore style confrontational documentary about a man (laughs) they believe is a bear poacher. Right. Only to find out that he's actually Norway's only state employed troll hunter. And he kind of uh, goes out and hunts down trolls that are causing trouble. Only ones that are venturing out of their territory and attacking German tourists and, you know, causing problems. But, But generally otherwise... Trolls stay where they are, and they're kept secret by the government. So these college students feel like they've really discovered a, you know, a great thing, and they're going to do this expose. And I, I think what makes this work well, other than what I kind of spoke about before, which is that combination of kind of shaky documentary style footage with mm. special effects that, yeah. that is kind of a, a, a very the juxtaposition is still very interesting, is that it's based around the character Hans played by Otto Jesperson, who is the, the troll hunter who is this really, he can't, he's like uh, so unruffled all the time, even in the face of hunting down giant trolls. And he's also disgruntled. Like he is this poor government employee who drives around in a beat up camper and works bad hours. And the reason that he lets these, filmmakers follow him is that he he kind of wants them to expose this world in part because he feels like he's pissed off he's pissed off he's not getting treated well and also he's kind of upset about the way the trolls are being treated (laughs) there's actually a strange melancholy to the whole idea as much as the trolls are not made cute they're giant lumbering smelly farting uh goat eating animals they're incredibly dumb he you know doesn't like having to kill them all the time. And that's part of the reason he offers this expose. But it's a slow build, deliberately, kind of, you know, it starts off 
with the slow discovery of one type of troll and kind of builds up to ex- exposing different types of trolls and also troll mythology. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, it It's very clever. Like, it's a very fun film that makes a lot from I, what feels like fairly little that they, you know, had to work with. It's not a, th- you know our $100 million uh, blockbuster, but they managed to offer this kind of both like scope and this commentary on government bureaucracy and kind of uh, secrecy. One of the, the antagonists, if you want to call it, that is uh, someone who's in the, in charge of the, you know, department of trolls in the government who, who is working to keep trolls secrets, mm. uh, no matter what. Was auf der Tal? But it's, you know, filmed out in rural Norway in really gorgeous looking, like very remote areas. And they, they managed to... Uh, make the concept run with the concept very in in very smart ways, uh, and I, it's it's funny and uh, it's a smart little film. Uh, it's Troll Hunter. It is available for streaming on Netflix and on Amazon Instant Video. So you're very drawn to the found footage movies that are specifically about giant things, people Apparently, recording giant things. Yeah, I wanted to steer away from the more traditional horror in that. So I, I kind of ended up with some focused on, on the giant monsters. With giant monsters. Well, yeah. But again, that speaks to sort of what we were already saying. That, that's an interesting perspective on big things because, you know, it gives us what it would feel like to a human being you know so many like godzilla movies and i love godzilla movies but you know it's guys in a suit fighting or in like seem, a, or in you don't the plane get the sense, and like yeah, yeah. But you don't get the sense of scale and scope you know they they feel like people in rubber suits they don't feel like giants you know everything just seems normal sized instead of big and when you have these movies like the cloverfield monster and the trolls like they have a sense of grandeur to them right. and, and bigness that you don't necessarily get because the camera is so low to the ground. Like that helps create that sense of scale. Exactly. You're seeing the, from the perspective of people who are running away, right? right? Or like being, you know, chased right. by this giant thing. And again, the metaphor of just like, you know, like ordinary tiny people being caught in enormous circumstances. I mean, it literalizes that because the, the these creatures are so big that we just seemed, humanity seems so dwarfed by by the creatures. Yeah. Good picks all around. Okay, my last pick is available on Amazon and iTunes to rent. And if you're a Hulu Plus subscriber, uh, the Criterion Collection has it streaming on there as well. It's called Man Bites Dog. It's directed by uh, three gentlemen whose names are uh, going to be mispronounced by me right now. Remy Belvaux, Andre Bonzel, and Benoit Poolboard. I apologize to all three of them because I butchered all of their names, and they made such a fabulous film. The least I could do was do better, but oh well. Uh, actually, this film, which I think you've seen, Allison, mm-hmm. is uh, kind of similar to The Dirties in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's a about a documentary film crew that is following around a serial killer, making a movie about him. And uh, at first, they're just sort of recording his crimes, but as the movie goes on, they become sort of increasingly complicit in his actions. And I don't want to compare the two too much because I don't want to spoil our review of the dirties, which is coming up in just a few minutes, but they are very similar right down to the sort of senses of humor, the very dark humor about 
you know, these killers or these very de- deranged people who are the subjects of the films. The thing that's kind of the big difference to, to my mind between the two and what makes Man Bites Dog particularly interesting is that the filmmakers are really actively part of the film we're watching. It's They're not unseen observers who are filming this guy. They become increasingly involved in these horrible things he's doing and their characters in the film. And eventually we're watching them as much as we are watching uh, the killer. Patrick, notre, notre preneur de son est, est, est mort. Ce sont des choses qui, qui ne sont pas faciles à dire et... You know, it's not a case because we've talked about this of, you know, like who found this footage? Who was making who are the people making it? What was their point of view? The movie makes all that quite clear. I mean, we might not know ultimately who edited the film or is is presenting it to us, but it's very clear who made it. And so I think it's very interesting to watch the decisions of the filmmakers and. It, it just creates all these questions in your mind about not just this extreme example, but all documentary filmmakers and why they film what they film and and how they don't become involved in some cases. You know, it's a it, it kind of presages in a lot of ways reality television, this world where we're watching people do horrible things and nobody steps out from behind the camera to stop them. We all want to see them do these horrible things, you know, and people on these reality shows break into a fight, you know, or they, you know, almost kill someone potentially. No one puts down the camera to stop. Everyone keeps filming. You know, that's the, that's what we're all here to see. That's what they're here to film and that's what we're here to watch. One one last thing I would I would give it credit for is it does a very good job of maintaining the illusion of it being a, a fake documentary. You know, there's a lot of found footage movies the one that immediately comes to mind for me is like end of watch which was a satisfying cop movie and a terrible found footage movie yeah because it has you know they established from the first scene that the cops uh well they're you know like oh we're gonna wear uh, button cameras and i've got a camera here i'm and doing I'm, I'm doing a film for my film class that you will never see that you'll or never hear see. about really again right and that's the that's why we have cameras but then instantly there's impossible shots camera shots yeah angles that are impossible and it's just like if that to me is like the 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 worst you could do if you're going to create this uh, environment and this these rules you have to follow them either obey the rules or don't mention the rules you know what i mean and man bites dog really generally does a really good job of of keeping a, a believable plausible reality to the fiction that these are just like a couple of guys who are filming this there's not a lot of angles that are impossible it just it feels like a real documentary, which is what makes it so disturbing and effective. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this one. It's a really it's a really good film and also one that just engages with the the idea that you're not uh that just because you're like filming something, it doesn't like it doesn't excuse you really from right. you know You're not like, inoculated from being Right, uh, because uh, you're a documenting something right. that you're not yeah, you have no responsibility towards what's being there. And and also just about like falling in love with your subject because they're yes. such a good subject. Right. And he is the, He is a fantastic subject, yeah. But Killer like, Ben it, is just so fascinating and charming and yeah. that you you do. You do kind of fall in love with him even as he's just a right. you're like, person. Oh, he's getting good stuff here and even though good stuff is not necessarily good. <laughs> right. You know. Right, exactly. That there's a price that's uh paid even if people don't want to uh, address it yeah so it's a really interesting movie man bites dog available on amazon and itunes to rent or you can stream it on hulu plus 
before we get to our listener's choice review, uh, I've been putting out the call on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU for people to share their picks for uh, each week's Q shots. So I, I put the call out there. We've got some excellent recommendations we haven't mentioned yet. I've actually never seen either of these movies, so I'm wondering if you have, Allison. But let's get to them real quick. First up, we have Carl from Washington, D.C., and he wants to recommend Lake Mungo. He says it appears at first to be little more than a paranormal activity knockoff. After a young girl mysteriously dies, her family begins to experience unexplained phenomena which are caught on tape. First-time writer-director Joel Anderson presents the film as a faux documentary, allowing the audience to view news reports and talking heads, deftly establishing an apparently factual narrative. But it's not long before all these supposedly established truths are carefully laid to waste. By the time the credits roll, and you need to stick around for the credits, Carl says, we're left to ponder a rather unsettling question. What's more frightening? Not knowing what lurks in the shadows or not knowing what lurks in the minds of the people we think we know best. So that's Lake Mungo. I haven't seen that one, Allison. Have you? Yeah, I have seen it. It was actually one that I was considering for one of my picks, but then it felt like maybe it fell a little more in that a fake documentary there's category. no giant monsters in that one there's no giant yeah it was also just appallingly short on giant monsters <laughs> i like i can't believe it. like most movies really yeah um but yeah i thought maybe it was like a little more of the the mockumentary if you want to use that word but uh. it is definitely it's definitely a film that has a lot of interesting twists that every time you think you know the direction it's going in mm-hmm. it it jerks you back in a completely different one mm-hmm. in a way that I really liked. So, yeah, I would I would second that. That's okay. definitely a, a film worth checking out. All right. So that's Lake Mungo from Carl in Washington, D.C. And finally, we have one from Mark uh, Freeman. He says, by no means the best, but at least one of the more effective found footage films is the Poughkeepsie Tapes, directed by John Dowdle. It has sequences that fall flat, but it has a grubby aesthetic and some effectively horrifying sequences the footage of the woman bouncing on the balloon while a voice screams from behind the camera, pop it, is completely terrifying. I'm terrified just reading that description. Uh, does the film hold together? Probably not, but it does use the found footage elements in an interesting way. Have you seen the Poughkeepsie tapes? I also? haven't. It's not easy to see. This is a film, I'm not sure if it's it ever got an official release, mm-hmm. but it's one that's kind of developed a following, certainly. And it's one I've heard a lot about. Yeah, so. I have too. Uh, yeah, I have not seen it, but all right, I, I'd well, be interested, certainly. All right. Well, thank you for that recommendation, Mark, the Poughkeepsie Tapes. And again, uh, follow us on Twitter, at FilmSpottingSVU, and whenever we decide what the subject of the, the theme of Q Shots is going to be, we put it up there, and, and we love to hear people's recommendations. Movies we haven't seen. Yeah. we got two more we haven't seen, so that's great. That's yeah, exactly and, uh, what we want to do. I want to do a few quick mentions Please. from Twitter. Uh, a few people wrote in. Yes. I'm not going to read everyone's username, but just some of the ones that were suggested. Um, someone says Blair Witch is far and away the best. Someone else suggests Bobcat Goldthwait's new found footage Bigfoot movie, Willow Creek, which is, uh, I think, still on the festival circuit. I don't think it's I gotten... haven't seen that. I didn't even know he made a. Found he kind of very movie. quietly released it on the festival circuit. And it, he, I don't think he's got a distributor yet, but yeah, it's been slowly making the rounds. Oh, that so, sounds intriguing. So that's one. Um, someone else mentions Chronicle. Uh, someone says, I really enjoyed the last broadcast. It predates Blair Witch yeah. and is very scary. Uh, another person mentions The Bay. Uh, the Bay. Yeah. Barry which, Levinson. Barry right? Levinson, a recent yep. film. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting one. Sort of like Jaws as found footage. Yeah. Not, and, not great, but it definitely has some really good moments. Yeah, and uh, someone else mentions Grave Encounters. Mm. So there we go. Lots some more, more suggestions we there. Had, nobody's mentioned the other one that we got to at least I got to throw in here because somebody is going to be upset, and they should be because it's awesome, is Wreck. 
Uh, yes, it is, is one it's, of oh, the best. Really it is, might be the best found footage horror movie. The first one is yes. really good. It's so frightening. It's really terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I, that the sequels uh, not as good. The first wreck, which they remade in, I think what was it? Quarantine, Quarantine was the American version. Yeah, this is the original. This original Spanish version. Wreck. R E C. Oh my God, is really scary. It might be. I mean, it's up there with Blair Witch. I think as. Oh yeah, it, it uses just the idea of how limited your perspective is, just in the frame, really well. And it again has a very believable fake documentary aesthetic. You know, it really keeps to that one camera. It's like a a, a crew that's accompanying a like a firefighting crew on on like a, what their nightly you know rounds are like, and they just happen to catch the worst night of their lives. And very well done from a technical perspective. Really terrifying. Have we mentioned the other one? We got to mention uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Have we mentioned it at all? I don't think we have. But yeah, that I we think couldn't is, find it online anywhere. Yeah, and that is, as far as I know, the first one. It's I would love cons- to hear if yeah. there's if there's one earlier in in either the horror genre or otherwise. It's but. definitely considered the the granddaddy. Yes, and the actually, uh, got the you know got the director um in trouble a bit right that's he had right. to explain himself right. for people uh, accused him of making a snuff film he basically. had to produce the actors and be like they're still alive now that's an effective uh <laughs> fake found footage movie if people think you actually murdered the uh, the actors you've done a pretty good job what we should have done is just actually shot those guys if we'd actually just gone and killed all the dirties Can you imagine if that if we showed that movie to class oh my god what a movie of everybody dead no if you go if we went in and we ugh, if we just went and shot, the, what did Muldoon say? You can't. This is you can't make a school shooting movie. If we made a movie where we went in and we just shot the bad guys, yeah, that's what we did in our movie. But if we actually did it, if we actually went with real guns and actually killed only the bad guys, but we just blew them away all on camera, Muldoon's like, you know, guys, this is really. You, di- you didn't listen to me. <laughs> I thought it, I said it was too dark before when you were pretending to kill these guys. Now you actually kill them. Oh, you're actually going to kill these guys. Well, now it's time for our listeners' choice section in which we give you, the Film Spotting SVU listeners, an opportunity to vote on which film, or occasionally TV series, we review in the next podcast. And just a reminder, we're trying out something new for the next episode, which we'll explain in more detail in a little bit. But your choices this round were all recent films, Blue Caprice, The Dirties, and Haunter. And after a close race between those first two entries, The Dirties pulled out ahead. The Dirties, which is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, and Sony, is the directorial debut of Canadian filmmaker Matt Johnson, who also co-wrote and stars in the film as Matt, who, with his best friend Owen, played by Owen Williams, has been working on a goofy genre film for class in which the two of them take out the guys who've been bullying them, who they call The Dirties. This film is a genuine indie that premiered at Slamdance in January and came out in theaters earlier this month, courtesy of Kevin Smith, who calls it the most important film you will see all year. It has a $10,000 budget and is heavily improvised and takes the format of a found footage film that opens with a disclaimer about how the footage uh, hasn't been altered. So uh, Matt and Owen are geeks. They're film buffs, especially Matt, who copes with getting shoved <laughs> you around. You saying Matt is a film buff. Matt, I'm like, uh, it's, it's confusing not you. Me. It's oh. not you. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, but Matt, who copes with getting shoved around and humiliated by bullies, they both in different ways. You know, Owen, the quieter one, just deals with it. Even Braves talking to one of the popular girls he's had a crush on for years and it doesn't go poorly. But Matt is goofy and always playing things off as a joke until we start to realize he's actually handling the bullying much worse. 
uh, especially as his proposed plan of shooting a sequel to the film in which he does actually kill the dirties start to seem less like a laugh uh, as the laugh he initially presents it as. So Matt, my first question to you is one that we've brought up uh, before in this podcast. What did you think about how the film handled who's handling the camera here? Oh, yeah, that is a big question. That was something I wrestled with personally. Yes, there's, I think, at least two cameramen involved. But the thing is, the movie never really addresses them. They are sort of silent witnesses. Uh, as I alluded to and when we were talking about Man Bites Dog, there's a, a film where the camera crew who is making this is made very clear. And while their actions are... We might question them and their, you know, their complicitness in these horrible things that are happening. At least we can like look at them. We can consider them. They're characters. And here, they are absences. And you might argue that that's a deliberate choice on the part of the director. I'm sure he would say it was, and I'm sure he had a reason for it. But I, that was something that did kind of frustrate me because, yeah, the, these these cameramen are, are everywhere – they have, you know, great shots of everything that's going on. They're filming during classes, and it just seemed like a lot of times they, they really took me out of the quote-unquote reality of the film was specifically um, sort of the, the magicalness of the, of the camera crew, the fact that they don't – I think we hear one of their names at one point. because Jared. I, Jared. Which is the name of the cinematographer. Jared Robb is the movie cinematographer. I see. I see. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, Matt, the main character, the main actor, who's also the writer-director, I mean, he does address him by name at one point. There's a couple of times where he talks directly to the camera, but there is this thing where they never get involved in anything that's happening. And again, I'm sure – from the director's perspective, this is a deliberate choice. He's saying that, uh, you know, we've become so focused on our phones, our cameras, or what have you, that we now mediate our reality through them, that we're so focused on what we're looking at in front of us on a screen, that we don't see the danger in front of us, or we don't, we're not interacting with the world. But I have to say, there came several points where I was a little frustrated with it. I don't know about you. Yeah, you know, I think there's an interesting theory I was reading from someone that I don't think is necessarily supported by the movie, but I can understand why they came up with it, which is that there's no camera and that this is just representing his kind of slipping reality, essentially. Sure. You know, that he... Like the movie that he sets out, the sequel that he sets out to make, kind of the dirties, the second dirties that he wants to make. Right. That's the movie we're watching, right? Yes. Like we are, it's, it's, he is starring in his own movie. Yeah. And that I can see it in a certain way to be like, there's a little bit of evidence in the movie, especially like I don't the think, end credits. Like, right. Does, I think. And I don't know that Owen ever acknowledges the camera. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I didn't go through and look at it again to take note, right. but it's certainly Matt who addresses the camera all the time. Yes. And he's the main character and he's driving this action. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't think that we really get to see Owen by himself that much, you know? No. So uh, you could argue it. I don't know that it's necessarily there, but I can understand why the theory was brought up because there does seem to be this almost this slippery reality right. to it where but either magical, you accept. Magical, I think, was the word right. I used. Exactly. Like either you accept that these uh that filmmakers or someone maybe a friend has been following these guys for a really long time you know or like for no with no explanation and also never speaks never comes out from like we never see the other camera on camera right no one else acknowledges the camera so yeah there is like a a magical aspect to it yeah certainly The, the problem with that theory although it's interesting yeah is the movie opens with a disclaimer saying this footage was discovered it has not been altered in any way out of respect for the victims right 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 and not just that 
we watch them when they make the dirties, the movie they're making for class. It's shot by someone. Right. We see them th- digging those shots. Right. You know, someone has holding the camera. There's problems point. with the theory. In other right. Words. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I can understand why I was brought up. I don't know that it's necessarily a very central question you know but it, it's something you think about constantly in the film right. but again it's that thing to me where it's like what i was saying with end of watch it's like if you bring up if you really address the conventions of it if you have a disclaimer saying this is found footage this is what it is uh you know to me that makes it more important to obey the rules uh, maybe that's just my problem i have a very literal mind but like to me it's like when you uh, when you bring it up that's when i start to focus on it and i did find myself uh, focusing on it a lot in this movie. I mean, I don't know about you, but that was something that I did get hung up on a little bit. I don't know. It wasn't. I wasn't something. I think it bothered you more than it bothered me. But right. it it does. It is this kind of question mark that's left there hanging over the whole film. Right. What, what did you think of its portrayal of someone kind of contemplating violence, mass violence? I thought. I, uh, this movie I thought was really interesting and I also had some problems with it to yeah. be totally honest I mean the, the ideas behind it I think are very interesting and the conceit of a found footage movie about uh, you know like a school shooter I think is a, is a really smart one but I don't know if I necessarily found the, the character Matt all that believable as a person as someone who would go on a school shooting as a high schooler I mean the actor seems to me like my age he looks old to be a high schooler. Like it, it's interesting because the movie was shot in a real high school, and a lot of the extras are real high school kids, and it adds a great flavor to the movie. And there are shots near the end of the movie that are like GoPros that have been set up all around the school, and it's just shots of kids walking down the hallways. And the kids in those shots look at least 10 years younger than our main actor. And, and so immediately that sort of put me off. And, you know, it's this, it's this kind of thing where I was thinking about this, that found footage movies, they, like, can lower the bar for suspension of disbelief, but they can also, like, heighten our BS detector. Because you're making some sort of claim to reality. You are saying, this is a documentary. This is real. This is real things happening. Uh, so it doesn't have that veneer of fiction where you can say, well, this is a fiction. This is, you know, this is not real. It has its own rules. Hypothetically, we're looking at reality, and hypothetically, these events happened. And so it, you know, when things don't quite fit or make sense, it, it, it almost heightens that as a problem. And that's, I, to sometimes that's kind of what happened to me in this case, is that the character, he didn't really look quite right. He didn't really sound quite right to me. He just seemed like an assemblage of points, you know, about not just bullying and not just uh, school shooting, but also mass media and being obsessed with, you know, filming and want, you know, like he's obsessed with movies and he quotes from movies. It just seemed like a combination of all these ideas, which are all independently very interesting. And I think the movie has interesting things to say about them. But as a collective whole, I don't know if it all holds together. Yeah, I feel like I really liked character at like the portrait of the character and the particular way he starts to fall apart because i that actually was not one that i feel was portrayed much and actually it was one that seemed very like just spoke to types of people i knew in in middle school and high mm-hmm. school which is that the way that you kind of laugh about these things that are actually really bothering you you know that to smooth them over mm-hmm. you kind of you goof about them and you're like haha like the the scenes in which they're bullied 
which are cut throughout the film and are just kind of presented in this very without comment way, right? Like you see them in the halls just getting like thrown on the ground or like like humiliated. Yeah. And it's just the day-to-day bullying that you might deal with, you know, in a really traditional way, like yeah. someone just, or like harassing you in the cafeteria or something. I, I thought they those were presented like very well. And I thought that that, his reaction to them, Matt's in particular, where you just, or both of them actually, Owens, where you just those were stoically effective, effective yeah. scenes. I think like those are the best. Stoically scenes. take them, or in his case, you know, you kind of you laugh them off when you don't you don't think they're funny, right? Yeah, I thought that was really well done, mm-hmm. and uh, it seemed very authentic to me in a way. In the same way, I feel like the character of Matt and the way he sometimes kind of walks into humiliation almost like preemptively or just like the way he speaks up in class, the way he does make the way, the way they make that movie, you know, like, yeah, you like that. Well, I just, I, yes, because it, it seemed very believable to me. Really? I, I knew people like that. Really? Who, yeah. Oh, that's who kind of almost like walked into preemptively did things that huh. would draw, would draw ire and attention almost like, as a way of getting it over with or like as a kind of masochistic thing, yeah. you know, you're oh, already getting bullied. So why don't you just do the thing that you know is going to, yeah. to bring it on? No, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't, I see I, to me, sometimes those scenes bordered on like absurd because they were so, the characters seemed so unaware of what they were doing. Like, yeah. well, of course this is going to draw right. more bullying. Yeah. You know, like, cause I was a kid who was bullied in high school Yeah, and I was putting myself into these situations going, I wouldn't like, this is just, you're just asking for trouble. Not yeah. that you deserve the trouble, but you're like, you're, you're giving more opportunities to get picked on. But you know, that's interesting that you feel like it, it actually did ring true to you. So yeah, it did. It really reminded mm. me of some people I knew. Mm. Uh, and I, I much I was much less happy with the whole media commentary thing. I'm not sure that yeah. the film really knew what, where it was going with that and i'm not sure i'm not sure i know where it was going with that you know we're obviously in a media saturated age yes there and kind of finding solace in you know all of these pop different aspects of pop culture is absolutely a part of of i'm sure a lot of people's experiences formative experiences growing up but I, I thought the kind of the way the film portrays him as having trouble maybe separating you know, separating the part, like the movie from his life. Mm-hmm. I was not, just not something I cared about or bought. Yeah. Really. I mean, I liked the visual of like that man cave that, the, that Matt and Owen have that where they're like, the walls are covered with comic books and magic cards and, and, and DVDs and movie posters. And it almost feels like, you know, the, like the idea of like pop culture as this protective bubble, yeah. you know, that they're like literally like swaddled in pop culture. And, a lot of bullied kids, like this one right here, definitely did stuff like that. You like lose yourself in that protective bubble of superheroes and and you know movies and all that sort of stuff. But then I don't know that the movie quite justifies the he's been like driven to do this because of movies. You know, it really kind of hammers that home just by like sheer repetition of well, he quotes from movies and oh, like this is a, I, I'm doing the Joker in the Dark Knight here. It just seemed a little, like you said, it just doesn't, I don't know if it really, uh, the movie kind of makes it, makes a good enough case, you know? And, and I don't, yeah, I don't know that the movie even really believed that. That was the part. But I it's felt, there. I know, it's but it there. felt insincere, you right. know? Right, Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the references that are, he uses? Uh, there's one part in the very beginning, 
which I thought was very funny. They're talking to two kids that they run into who are also making their own movie, like younger right, kids. Right. And he he mentions um, Irreversible, which is a really funny reference to throw to two like eleven right. year old kids or whatever they were. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I think that's what it is. I think it's it's there as a joke more than as a authentic reference. I mean, there was a few times where I was like questioning their sort of as like presumably like 16 17 year old kids like their frame of reference for movies like if you look at their again that pop culture bubble that room which i thought again like a really clever and effective metaphor you look on the wall there's like a poster for like wonder boys and a poster for like schindler's list and it's just like what 16 year old boy who's so obsessed with violent video games and all this sort of thing would like have wonder boys or schindler's list on his wall, it just seemed—I don't know—the the frame of reference seemed off, a seemed little a off. little yeah. off. And again, it, it, to me, it did seem more like a, a, of a piece with a guy who's like probably a, our age, a little younger, who's like looking at like his frame of reference from that time. Yeah, and less yeah. what an actual sixteen-year-old these days would, would yeah, be into. Would yeah. have access. I did like the portrayal of their friendship. I yeah. thought like it—it's really kind of until it you know sours towards the end. It's yeah. a really sweet. Uh, portrayal of just how two guys, two high school guys, like, they have good know. chemistry. The two yeah. actors, and there's a, and in general, so, the, the 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 like I said, the fact that they shot it in a real high school with real kids in the backgrounds definitely adds a heightened element of reality and makes the movie more disturbing. All right, last thing before I don't want to spoil it, but before we go, the ending. Did you think it ended at the right place? Would you have liked more? Would you have? What did you think of? Uh, without spoiling the details, was was the ending effective for you? I I hated the last line. Mm. Uh, I thought that the way it was before that, as it was playing out, was like frighteningly realistic. Yes. Um, yeah, I didn't like the note. The very note it ended on. I loved the credits. The credits are maybe the best part of the They're movie. They're fantastic. And probably the most interesting uh, part of that whole media saturation aspect of the movie is the closing credits. Um, I agree with you there. And the fact that we have kind of seen that introduced in the movie does make them more interesting. And all right, that's a good place to uh, end it, I think. I think uh, you maybe liked it a little bit more than I did. We yeah, both I think so. A little mixed. Mixed on it. But, but it's certainly an interesting film. And it's, a really great first effort. It's a, I was going to say, it's a very impressive first film. It's certainly ambitious. You know, if $10,000 is what they made it for, kudos to them. That's definitely an achievement. And it has some interesting things to say. It, and we just talked about it for 20 minutes, so it can't be that bad if we are uh, had that much to chew on. It definitely gives you stuff to talk about. Uh, that is The Dirties, available on all sorts of platforms and systems. You can rent it pretty much anywhere online right itunes amazon youtube all of them all I of, think. all of the main players yeah. you can rent it online and uh if you uh, agree with us you disagree with us i know we had people suggesting this film to talk about curious to hear from them so email us svu at filmspotting svu.com tell us what you think about the dirties now it's time for our Behind the Eight Ball segment in which we offer you three new films to streaming, two listener recommendations, and one randomly selected item from our My List. My List. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you couldn't resist. Uh, uh, all right, stared well, me down. Matt, you're up ne- first. Uh, you ready? I'm up next and I'm up first. Yes. Yes, I am ready. All right. Three new picks. Okay, I'll start with a very interesting and entertaining Spanish movie I saw at this year's Ebert Fest. It's called Blanca Nieves. It's a 2012 film that retells the fairy tale of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as a black and white silent film 
with some very unique twists. The dwarves aren't miners in this one, Allison. They're bullfighters. Ooh, they're indeed. The, Twist, indeed. The seven bullfighting dwarves, and uh, Snow White gets into the bullfighting as well herself. <laughs> uh, it's a beautifully shot movie. It's dark. It's funny. It's very whimsical. It really does feel like kind of a an old school, you know, Grimm's fairy tale where it's it's dark. It's not just, you know, it's not, it's, this is not Disney's Snow White. Let's put it that way. And uh, if you're a fan of animal performances in films, Pepe the Rooster <laughs> gives a really outstanding uh, Oscar, Oscar-worthy performance in Blanca Nieve. So, you know, I'm sure if you hear this, you go, oh, it must be like uh, The Artist or something because it's a, a new film that's a silent film, black and white. But it's a little different. And also, I think it, it kind of... It, it doesn't uh, it doesn't cheat in the way the artist did at times with the score and with some of the dialogue and sound effects. So it's an interesting little film. Uh, Blanca Nieves available now on Netflix. Next up for a throwback of a different kind, check out The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which is also available now on Netflix. It's a wonderfully weird cult oddity from the 1980s. It's sort of a cross between... It's a little bit like an adventure serial from the 1930s. It's kind of like an old, great comic book that was never published. And there's a little bit of a Monty Python sketch in here, too, I think. Peter Weller stars as Buckaroo Banzai, who's an adventurer, a crime fighter, a neurosurgeon, and a rock star. That old (laughs) cliché who, along with his group, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, are fighting an invasion of the evil Red Lectroid aliens. And uh, the aliens are played by Dan Hedaya, Vincent Ciavelli, John Lithgow as Dr. Emilio Lizardo, and Christopher Lloyd as, Allison, do you know his name? John Big Booty, or, <laughs> excuse me, Big Booty! That's like enough crazy character actors for a hundred movies, and they're all in this movie together. Uh, I recently rewatched this one to participate in a staff forum uh, at the, the Dissolve, the website I worked for, where this was one of our movies of the week. And it was a lot of fun. You know, the really fun part of it is so many superhero movies these days, Allison, but they're all like, especially the first one, it's always an an origin story. And it's that same tired rehash of the same story we've made a million times. Buckaroo Banzai is treated like it's issue number 155 of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. There's all these references to other existing adventures and stories that we have no idea what they mean, but they're sort of as a winking in-joke to the fact that this is the first adventure for us, but this is Buckaroo Banzai does this every day. So this is just the latest adventure. And I really love that sort of the spirit of dense continuity that we don't understand is really unusual and a lot of fun. It's a really great cult movie. So that's The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. And it's available on Netflix. And finally, available on Amazon Prime, the brilliant Star Trek parody, Galaxy Quest, from director Dean Parasot. The film is about the actors of a once popular, now canceled television series called Galaxy Quest, which is basically Star Trek. And they are mistaken for actual spacefaring heroes by the members of a not particularly bright alien race. They call on them to save them from another alien race that wants to destroy them. If you've never seen the film, which stars Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, and in two of their early screen performances, Justin Long and Sam Rockwell, who's really great as is it Guy Fliegman, I think is his name. It's just a really great satire of Star Trek and Star Trek fandom, and it's a pretty satisfying adventure film as well. I haven't seen this movie in a while. I actually, looking at it, uh, popping up on Amazon, I was going, i got to rewatch it. It's been too long since I've seen Galaxy Quest, which again is available now on Amazon Prime. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, we've got a bunch here. I'm going to give you two, and then I'm going to give a quick shout-out to a third, because I want to get as many in here as we can. This first one is from 
apparently the director, James Cameron, wrote into us, Allison. <laughs> or maybe it's just someone else with the name James Cameron who's a listener. And who's never heard that joke before. Never. Never. Never possible. Uh, anyway, James writes, hey, Sfuvians. I watched a film that this weekend that pleasantly surprised me, so I thought I would recommend it in case anyone else was put off by the lackluster romantic comedy marketing or more likely had never heard of it. The film is I Give It a Year about a pair of newlyweds dealing with the petty annoyances and comedic misunderstandings that come with being married, as well as fending off the attentions of the smarmy mentalist and a dowdy Anna Ferris, also featuring Stephen Merchant, essentially playing himself with all the best lines. It manages to be laugh-out-loud funny, but also somewhat true to life. And James says, full disclosure, I am an Englishman, and I'm not sure if it's available over in the United States, but you can watch it on Love Film here, Love Film being a... Uh, UK uh, streaming service. Uh, if you want to give it some transatlantic attention, I very much enjoy your show as a parent. Actual visits to the cinema are rare, but nights on the sofa are plentiful, so your recommendations are taken up regularly here. Thanks. That's from the director of Avatar, James Cameron, uh, recommending I give it a year. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere, but I'm sure it's available somewhere to rent. Uh, thank you, James, for that recommendation. Uh, I've also got a recommendation here from Martin, who gave me his Twitter handle, which I'm happy to share Twitter handles. If people want to include their Twitter handles on the show, we can give him shout-outs. If you want to follow Martin, he's at John Castmart, J-A-W-N-C-A-S-T-M-A-R-T. Martin says, I recommend A Horrible Way to Die. A lot of movies involving serial killers end up pretentious messes that are nowhere near as clever as they think they are. Not so here is Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard, writer and director of the well-received You Are Next, and also uh, contributors to VHS2, which I talked about earlier. Crafted a superb thriller here, A Horrible Way to Die effortlessly shifts between the escape of a serial killer, the ex-girlfriend of said killer trying to move on with her life, and flashbacks to the relationship between the two with such a plum, I was utterly enthralled for its whole running time. Love the show. Keep up the good work. That was Martin and very quickly, we also got a lovely bunch of recommendations from Crystal, who recommends Broadcast News, now available on Netflix, Ronin, now available on Netflix, and The Devil's Backbone, now available on Crackle. All right. And one from your My List. You gave me number 111, which is Abduction, starring the finest actor of his or any generation, Taylor Lautner, <laughs> as a young man who finds his, his picture on a missing persons website and begins to question everything he knows. Questions like, am I really an actor? Will my career continue past the Twilight franchise? So many questions, Allison. My big question is, why did John Singleton direct this? I'm glad you brought that up. Why yes. are Sigourney Weaver, Maria Bello, Jason Isaacs, and Alfred Molina all also in this? Why did I add this to my list? I don't know. I've already seen this one. Oh my god, is it good? <laughs> is it as good as I thought it would be? It... <sighs> True or false, Allison, there is no actual abduction in the movie. There is, no, there is no abduction. No, why would that be? Absolutely not. No. The, the actual explanation is much worse. Really? Of just like ridiculous, yes. But, do, uh, yeah. do I need to watch it? It seems like it yes, could be really would, hilarious. I think you absolutely should watch it. It does, like, poor Taylor Lautner is just it, not ready, anywhere near ready to lead a movie. And Who, who's, who's, gonna, who's the least embarrassed to be in this movie? Sigourney Weaver, Maria Bella, Jason Isaacs, or Alfred Molina? Who's, who's the best in the I'm movie? I'm just going to give it to Molina. Why not? I, I feel like he, he does some kind of... Does he have a beard? I don't remember. I don't think so. Oh. Yeah, it's been a while. Too bad. Sorry. All right. Well, that's Abduction, and God help me, it is available now on Netflix. Allison, are you ready for your Behind the Eight Ball segment? I am. 
Let's start with three new releases. All right. First up is a film that is new to Netflix, and I was really happy to see on there. It is This Is Not a Film, which is from Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi and Mutaba Mirtamaz. And I'm sorry if that's nowhere near how it is actually slaughtering so many names on this episode. <sighs> but it was it's a film that is shot surreptitiously while uh, Panahi was under house arrest in Iran. has uh, been banned from making films. The film was famously smuggled to Cannes in a cake on a flash drive and is filmed in part on an iPhone. And it is so difficult to describe as the title might suggest. It is a doc, but it's also kind of a hybrid. They fudge some things, but it's mostly filmed while Panahi is at home in his apartment almost entirely. He's not allowed to leave the grounds of the building, but he walks us through his friend through the film that he was working on. And uh, coincidentally, it is about a girl who is locked up by her family for wanting to attend college. And it manages to be both this really kind of funny commentary on films and why why we need films as opposed to just storytelling. Uh, it's a, an, an incredible statement on being silenced. And it's it's also just incredibly unexpectedly sad at the end. It's great. It was one of both of our favorites. Uh, Amazing from, movie. Yeah, 2012. You haven't seen it. It's fantastic. My list. Yes, please. Now, my next pick is on Hulu, and it is called Thesis. It's a 1996 film. Speaking of like other meta meta films, it is the debut from the Spanish-Chilean filmmaker Alejandro Amenabar, who directed Open Your Eyes, The Others, and The Sea Inside. Mm. Uh, this is a lower-budget thriller about a film student who is writing her thesis on violence on screen. And is friends with uh, a classmate who's a huge horror fan. And they both get pulled into this mystery involving an apparent snuff film uh, featuring a, another student they know on campus. So it's a, it's a thriller. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember it being, uh, you know, both managing to be a thriller and have some of that commentary on, on watching, right? Like on the process of watching violence on screen and why we do it. That's Thesis. It's on Hulu. And my last pick is available on Crackle, and it is Crawl. That's Peter Yates' 1983 film uh, set on the planet Crawl about a prince looking to rescue his kidnapped princess bride from the beast who arrived in his you know, fortress f- spaceship, which transports around the planet every day. I, You're a Kroll fan, Allison? Yeah, I have a soft spot for it. Really? You know, I feel like there's even this is not a film I saw like growing up. It was one that I came to later. It's getting more and more inexplicable by the second. No, but I feel like there's something about... Like, this was a really expensive film at the time, right? And there's something about practical effects and like even ones that don't necessarily hold up very well in this case. No. They, they, they <laughs> overreach incredibly, but in a really like kind of hearteningly dedicated way. There's something about Ken Marshall's uh, face as Colwyn as he tries to control... The Glaive, which is the Man, name for you the are a hardcore crawl five-pointed five knife boomerang that he uh, he uses. That is, I I find hilarious and yet like kind of touching. You know, he it has to be controlled with your willpower, and so his like acting face as he's trying to be like, I'm I'm gonna move the glaive with my mind. I find incredibly entertaining, and you know, I feel like uh, there's automatic nostalgia even if it's not 
from your childhood experiences with seeing a lot of slightly shabby looking practical effects and this one has plenty it has so many it's a it's an extravaganza of slightly shabby looking practical effects uh and also features a a young liam neeson in an early role that's right as his career went from kind of silliness to great seriousness and back to silliness again where we are Mm. right now Thank goodness. So that is all worked out. Yes, that is Krull. It is available on Crackle. Going to bat for Krull. I love it. Absolutely. I love it. I love that Peter Yates, the late, great Peter Yates, who made some of my favorite, like, hardcore crime movies of the 60s and 70s. Bullet. The Hot Rock. Friends of Eddie Coyle. Super gritty. (laughs) Totally. He's like, you know what the world really needs? Next up is a fantasy science fiction hybrid. Five-sided ninja star (laughs) thingy. Woo! Yep. All right. All right. Great picks. Great picks. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. The first one is from Paco, who says, I'm writing in to recommend Chris Marker's La Jetée, which is streaming with Hulu Plus or available for rent on Amazon and iTunes. It's a film many have heard of, but few have watched. Gilliam's 12 Monkeys is famously an adaptation of this very unique film, which is shot completely using stills and voiceover. Despite these limitations, the narrative is engaging and really had me thinking of the versatility of the medium and what films could have been made better, if approached from this perspective. Anyways, it has science fiction elements, time travel, and is only about half an hour long. It's from the 1960s in black and white and French. Watch it and be the cool guy at the next theme potluck you visit. Which is a, you know, who can resist that? Sold! Yes. And, you know, it is. Legete, if you haven't seen it, it is half an hour. It is exquisite. Like, it's just gorgeous. Uh, it is very much worth, worth seeking out. And the second listener recommendation is from Matthew, who says, Hi, guys. I know I'm a little late to the party with a screaming recommendation. But I just watched this film. And A, it seems very much in line with your guys' taste. And B, it's got an element of body horror to it, which I know both horrifies and intrigues Allison, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. The film is American Mary from 2012, directed by the Canadian filmmaking duo of the Suska Sisters. The twins who previously made Dead Hooker in a Trunk, which is a... It's one of those titles that, you know, you got to make the film. Uh, Mary stars Catherine Isabel as a med student who begins performing illegal body modification surgery as a way of making ends meet. And hilarity ensues from there. The film is very dark and at times very disturbing, but it's also permeated with a wicked sense of humor. has a lot of interesting things to say about the way women are perceived and treated in modern society based on their looks. So that's American Mary, and it is currently streaming on Netflix. Okay, and one random film from your queue. And I hope it's half as good as Abduction. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, it's a- <laughs> did I say queue? I'm sorry. Oh, my God. One random film from your my list. Thank you. Uh, you gave me number 91. And that is Walker, which is the 1987 film from Alex Cox, starring Ed Harris as soldier of fortune William Walker, who in the 1950s, with the help of mercenaries, overthrows the Nicaraguan government and takes over the presidency himself. Uh, It's kind of a famously anachronistic, deliberately anachronistic film. It's about American imperialism and features a score by Joe Strummer. So as one that and I think is one that usually people say is either, you know, misunderstood great or this, you know, famous overreaching flop. So and Taylor Lautner plays who in that one? I think he plays all the other characters. Nice. Uh, It's a masterful role. (laughs) He wasn't even born yet. I think does like the Eddie Murphy and the Nutty Professor thing. I think in 1987 he was not yet born. So it's really amazing, particularly amazing for that. A work of fetal greatness (laughs) by Taylor Lautner in Walker. All right. Well, this is the part of the show where we normally uh, run down our three options for our next listener's choice review, but we don't have to do that this time because we had a contest on our last episode. 
where uh, we asked you to submit a review on iTunes, and everyone who gave us a review, regardless of the grade, would be entered, and we would just randomly pick one person, and that one person would get to pick the next Listener's Choice review. It would be their one Listener's Choice. Instead of the will of the mob, it would be the will of one. And so that is what we did. We want to thank everyone for entering. We got a lot of uh, great reviews on iTunes. We got a couple not so good reviews. Some people <laughs> that, don't like me. That's a little wounded. Some people yeah. don't like me, apparently. You know, my funny voices. I don't know what it is. People think I have a funny voice. I don't get it. I feel like I have a very normal <laughs> voice. People don't like my voice. I was told I sound like a 14-year-old on Ritalin. I've never even taken Ritalin. Maybe I should. Would it help, Allison? I have no opinion. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. Matt. We did get a lot of, not. but we did get a lot of positive reviews. I because I had to do this and uh, get all the names. I did read all of the reviews. I we appreciated all of them. There were some very nice comments, some really funny ones. Someone comp- described us as a married couple, even though they know we're not married. But that was how they envision us when they play <laughs> with their dolls. I thought that was really. I wish that person could have won. Unfortunately, it was a random drawing. I, if I if I had gotten to choose, just from rating those comments, yeah, yeah, just from rating the ratings, that would have been the winner. But we did pick at random. I did put all the negative reviews in there. It could have been one of the people that hated me, which would have been that fascinating would have been, yes, very to see what they would have chosen. But it wasn't that wasn't the winner. The winner was the uh, the person whose uh, Apple ID was Sturgidson, S-T-U-R-G-I-D-S-O-N, Sturgidson. So congratulations. Email us, SVU, at filmspottingsvu.com with your pick. Remember, we got to do – it's got to be something that's available to stream on – Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon, or we can rent it on iTunes or Amazon. Somewhere we can we can get it. Don't pick something that's out of print. You know, Cannibal Holocaust, we can't do it. We can't find it. You know, so something that we can uh, find to rent or stream somewhere legally. Beyond that, the world is your oyster, Sturgeonson. You have the power, but use it well. Use it well. So as soon as we hear from our lucky winner and the film that he or she has chosen, we will announce it on our Twitter account, which is at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on Tuesday, November 19th. You can also check out Film Spotting SVU for our show archive, as well as a list to direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review that Sturgeonson picks. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And again, you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of every show's listener's choice, and in this case, the one listener's choice. And we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. We also announce the theme of our cue shots, where we love to... Hear from you guys. Send your feedback. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Uh, eight ball recommendations. Q shot recommendations. We love to hear from you. Send us your feedback. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And for Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.